Okay, so this week's Torah portion, let's start with this week in general. This week's Torah portion makes something special about the Shabbat, and it gives this Shabbat an entire name, and that is called Shabbat Chazak. Shabbat Chazak literally means the Shabbat Chazak means strength. And why is that so? Because five times a year, it's actually four times a year on a regular Shabbat, because the fifth time is on a holiday always, Simchat Torah. But every time you finish one of the five books of Moses, we say, Chazak, Chazak, Benis Chasek, and you know, from strength to strength. And that's why the entire Shabbat, on, uh, when we finish one of the five books, is called Shabbat Chazak. And this week we're finishing the book of Genesis. Now, I want to share in general, before we get into the detail of the Torah portion, the end, the closure of the book of Genesis is, is a huge piece of, uh, you know, a huge piece in the Torah. Why? Because the first book of the five books is called Sefer HaYishodim, the book of the straight ones, the righteous ones. And we're referring to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who walked straight in the path of God. So yeah, the first Torah portion takes us from Adam to Noah. The second Torah portion takes us from Noah to Abraham. But then the rest of the book is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And, and the closing portion is, is the passing, the last, very last piece, as we'll see, is the aftermath of the passing of Jacob. But this entire book is called the Book of Straight Ones. Now, on one hand, if we look at the Torah from the perspective of being the law of God, the Constitution, then this first book seems to be unimportant. We really don't have um, laws in this, in this book that isn't mentioned afterwards. So much so that Maimonides tells us clearly that the reason why we today circumcise ourselves is not because of the commandment in Genesis that God told Abraham that you and your offspring shall circumcise themselves, but rather we circumcise ourselves because in the book of Leviticus, there's one verse that says, and on the eighth day you shall circumcise. Now, why does he point that out? Because all of our 613 commandments need to be post the portion in the book of Exodus of the Ten Commandments. Because ultimately speaking, everything that we do today has to begin with the Mount Sinai revelation where God said, I am God, your God, and God gave Moses the Torah. So anything that is a commandment, for example, the story when the angel hit the hip of Jacob, and because of that, we, we eat, we don't eat a certain part of the animal by the sciatica. So even that has to be mentioned after the Torah portion of Jithro, in which we have the Ten Commandments in the book of Exodus. So seemingly, this first book is more like a history, more like a storybook, uh, you know, and in general, teaching with, with children, you know, the book of, of Genesis is beautiful. You know, it's all about stories and so forth and so on. It's, it's beautiful. But the truth is that the first book is the impetus and the empowerment 
for any of the future books. Because if not for our forefathers and our matriarchs, which are the called in the Torah by a verse, the mountains and the valleys upon which we stand, we would never have been able to ever reach Mount Sinai. Back it up, we would never have been able to survive Egypt. Hence, we are taught by our sages, Maase Avot Siman Lebanim. That is actually a quote that comes for later. Actually, in the, in the original text of these sages, it's that everything that happened to Abraham, everything that happened to the Jewish people happened to Abraham, everything that happened to Abraham happened to the Jewish people. So Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are a microcosm of what the macrocosm Jewish people will go through. And therefore, if not for them having opened up the portals and the gateways, if not for them having trotted through the path and cutting forth the path for us, we would have never been able to ever become this nation that can live up to accepting and heeding, observing, studying, and living God's law. It would just be impossible. So the book of Genesis, especially when you, when you inquire the, the, the teachings of Hasidus, and all of a sudden you realize that the book of Genesis is the most important book of all five books. And in general, Hasidim knew, there's a whole story with the third Lubavitch Rebbe that he asked his, uh, by a Fabrengian, he asked his uh, Hasidim, do you want to hear words of Torah or do you want to hear a story? And the mere fact that the Rebbe asked that to them, they realized that they're supposed to answer a story because naturally the normal inclination would be another teaching. You know, that's how the Rebbe connects him and gives his mind to us. However, we knew that a story is deep. And actually, most of Kabbalah and Hasidus and the deeper teachings come from the stories of our sages. The Ayin Yaakov, what we call it, the Agadot, that's where the quote, the words, Rav, most of the secrets of the Torah are hidden there. So I just want you to know that this week's Torah portion, we're concluding the book of Genesis, which really is, really is monumental. And everything in our life, we can find just in the first book of the Torah, the book of Genesis, because if we really carefully go beyond beneath the surface of their lives, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and their offspring, we will find our lives here. And we will find how they responded, teaching us and making it possible for us to respond in kind. Okay, so now let's start with this individual Torah portion. Vayechi Yaakov and Yaakov lived in the land of Egypt for 17 years. Now, let's start with pre-verse. In every single Torah portion, between one portion and another portion, there is what we call an open space. And the two type of open space, one's called a closed open space and one's called an open open space. 
But what it really means is, and normally the, the way it works is, you have to have nine empty letters. In other words, the space of nine letters has to be blank. Uh, blank. And that's what separates one portion from another portion. Out of the entire 53 slash 54 Torah portions, the only one that does not have this is our Torah portion. There is absolutely no empty space between the last word of last week's Torah portion and the opening word of this Torah portion. And our sages want to know why. And Rashi quotes them and he says two reasons. Number one, with the death of Jacob, our eyes have been closed. And number two, we're soon going to see that Jacob wanted to tell his children when will be the end of days, when will Mashiach come, and suddenly the prophecy was lifted from him and his mind became close to it. So the closure here is a reference to the closure that Jacob experienced in his spirituality when he wanted to divulge that secret and God did not want him to divulge that secret. That is what our sages share. One Shabbat, this Shabbat Vayechi, I had a guest from Borough Park who was sitting by the table with us in the shul and I asked him to say some words and he said a very interesting teaching from his teacher, his rabbi. And he said like this, he said that I shared with you the law is that you have to have an empty space which is wide enough of nine letters. Now let's look at the first two words of this week's Torah portion. Vayechi Yaakov and Yaakov lived. So you have Vayechi, Vav, Yud, Chet, Yud. Four letters. Space between the two words and the next word, Yaakov, Yud, Ayin, Kuf, Vet. That means that the first two words take up the space of the nine empty letters. And he said that his Rebbe taught him, not from Chabad, someone in Barapak, and he said that his Rebbe taught him that the job we have is, as we go into exile, is to fill up the empty spaces with Vayechi Yaakov, and Yaakov lives. And what we mean here is the legacy of Yaakov how Yaakov founded a nation and made a, a, a family and an offspring and a dynasty and a nation of people who are conscious of God and walk in God's ways. And he said that then his teacher, his teacher is actually very close to the Rebbe of Blessed Memory, and his teacher said, and that you can watch the Lubavitcher Rebbe do. Wherever there's a vacancy in the world, he's sending his boys to open up a Chabad house, boys and girls, He's sending the couples to open up a Chabad house there so no matter where you go, people can come to a place where Vayechi Yaakov, Yaakov is alive and well. Now, another interesting teaching. I, I'm going to teach you from both sides of the coin and my email went out today so you can actually look at the exact story and teaching. <clears throat> and we'll talk about it a little bit by the end, where, you know, on the topic of to live again. So it says here, Vayechi Yaakov be'eretz Mitzrayim, Shva Esreshona, and Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years, right? You'll remember last week 
when he meets Pharaoh for the first time, Pharaoh asks him, how old are you? He says, 130. And we know we're soon going to see Jacob passed away at the age of 147, which means he lived in Egypt for 17 years. Now, I want to share with you some interesting teachings here. Number one, numerology. The number 17 is the numerical value of the Hebrew word tov, which means good. Tet, vav, vet. Nine, six, two. 17. And what it means is that Yaakov lived tov, the good, the best years. Hence, the title of the email I sent out today is The Best Years Ever. And Jacob lived his best years in Egypt. And this comes from a very famous sage who's called the Baal HaTurim. He wrote a a uh, tour is like a mountain, and uh, he was the son of the great Rush to codify you. We're talking about people in Maimonides' level. We're talking about giants. So besides writing a book of law, he wrote a book of commentary, and he says that what the verse is telling us that Yaakov lived his best years in Egypt. I want to take this a step further and tell you that there's another teaching which gets more nitty gritty. And it says, don't look at the numerology of 17, but look at the numerology of the word Vayechi. Now, Vayechi and lived. The numerology here is Vav, Yud, Chet, Yud. What do you have? Vav is six, Yud is 10, Chet is eight, Yud is 10. Add it up and you should have 34. By the way, 34 is 2 times 17. What's the secret here? The secret is, according to this teaching, that the best years of Jacob's life was 34 years of his 147 years. How do you figure? Very simple. Jacob was sold into slavery when he was, I'm sorry, Joseph was sold into slavery when he was 17. Joseph lived in other words, Jacob lived, since he was reconnected with Joseph, 17 years, hence 34 years. The 34 years of his life was when he was together with Joseph. And there's huge, huge insights into that because Jacob, Jacob, as much as he lived a righteous life, Jacob being of the patriarchs, they were all shepherds, which means they all separated themselves from overly engaging with civilization and earning a livelihood. They wanted to be able to remain isolated because they lived in the world of spirituality. However, the world of spirituality is absolutely meaningless if it will not have an impact in the physical world. God did not create the world for spirituality. The divine light was always there but rather God created the universe so that there can be an impact of the divine light, spirituality, into the physical world, which is why in Judaism, spirituality is never done by closing yourself up in a monastery, in a cave, on a treetop, but rather engagement, engagement, engagement. Hence, 
Jacob's life was really fulfilled specifically through Joseph because all the other brothers followed in the footsteps of isolation and being shepherds. The one that went to the absolute polar opposite was Joseph, who not only was engaged in Egypt, but was engaged to the level where he was the viceroy, to quote what Pharaoh told him, without you, no one will lift a hand. That means Joseph had to be completely engaged in civilization and in what we call the rat race of civilization. And he was the one to be able to plow through the path that we could be very engaged while remaining true to our religion, to our spirituality, to our Torah. And hence, anything of the Jewish people from here, from there on, where you have Jewish people not just isolating into Torah study, but becoming lawyers, doctors, real estate, real estate people, and whatever it may be, their engagement in a way that it does not put us at a point where we have to make a choice, Judaism or secular success. But rather, Joseph told us that heaven and earth work as a team and not as two isolated antithetical identities. So hence, it will explain to us why Jacob's best years were when he had Joseph because that's when all of Jacob's spirituality was being brought down into the physical world, into a physical life. Now the verse goes on to say that he lived 147 years. And then he sees that he's getting close to passing away. So I want to share with you a couple of interesting teachings. This teaching actually comes from a manuscript of the Bach. The Bach was a famous commentary who actually went through the manuscripts of the Talmud and he would make corrections where certain manuscripts were different that he would, you know, he did a, a total research. So he has an interesting piece where he says like this, which actually explains why when someone sneezes in almost every culture, you say, Gesundheit, God bless you, or whatever it may be. La Priyut in Hebrew, it all comes from Jacob. Why? Because until Jacob, people did not get old in the sense of frail and, and sickly. So let's back up a step. I, Abraham was the first one to have white hair. And it's because he prayed, because we're taught that Isaac and, and Abraham were identical, identical in appearance. Hence, the people didn't know who's the father, who's the son. And therefore, Abraham prayed there should be some way, you know, bi biologically that they should be able to tell. And the Zohar tells us that God told Abraham, why don't you don my clothing? And that means white. However, there was no physical ailment in the process of aging. Jacob was the one that prayed to God that people should be able to age and become frail so that they would not be able to live in denial 
that it's time to get your affairs in order. Now, until then, how did people die if they didn't have heart attacks, get sick, or, you know, body shutting down? And the answer is they used to sneeze. Now, why would they die by sneezing? My personal, I did not see this anywhere, but my personal understanding is the way the soul enters, the soul leaves. You'll remember in Genesis, and it says, and God blew the spirit of life into his nostrils, Adam's nostrils. Hence, the soul enters through the nose, so therefore the sneeze, the, the, um, the uh, soul leaving through the same place it entered. And that is the reason the Bach over there says why we wish people Gesundheit. Um, and, and so much so that there are some people that say if someone sneezes and you, you, uh, you uh, intentionally don't say um, Gesundheit or bless you or Labriot or whatever it may be, um, it's actually theft. You're stealing from him, stealing through words. Now, he is the first one, then that's why the verse says, and he saw that his days were getting closer to passing because he was going through this frail aging process. And what does he want to do? He wants to get his affairs in order. So thank God he already got his affairs in order with his, uh, his children. He set up already the school system in, in, um, in Goshen, in the land of Egypt. He made sure that the Jewish people had their safe Jewish haven in which they can live a prosperous Jewish life, even in Egypt. What remains left for him to do? Two things, to make sure his burial and to bless his children. And that's what this week's Torah portion is about. So the first thing he does is he takes care of his burial place. And Jacob wants to be buried together with his father and grandfather, with his wife Leah, his mother and his grandmother, in Israel, in Hebron. And therefore, he calls Joseph. Now, why does he call Joseph? Primarily, it would be the responsibility of the firstborn of his, which would be Ruvain. Why is he called Joseph? Very simple. Because he has to talk to the only one who can make it happen. In other words, being that Joseph is royalty and Jacob is the father of royalty, Egypt won't be so quick to say that, Joseph, that Jacob can be buried anywhere outside of Egypt. He's part of royalty. He has to be buried in the pyramids in Egypt. Hence, he knew that it wasn't going to be easy to get him out of Egypt. On top of that, Jacob was considered by the Egyptians, you know, by them, everything is deities. So they saw Jacob as a form of deity because they knew that the hunger was supposed to last for seven years. And when Jacob came after two years and he blessed, um, he blessed the Pharaoh concerning the Nile River, suddenly there was irrigation and the famine was over. And so he knew that, you know, they're going to make a hoe to do out of him with a shrine and everything. And he says, not for me. I want to go back home. So he calls Joseph and he tells Joseph to take an oath. And obviously, why does he tell him to take an oath? You know, what, Joseph's word is not a word. He has to swear. 
And the answer is the process of taking an oath has nothing what to do with trusting or not trusting. The process of taking an oath is the process of empowerment to the point of self-sacrifice. In other words, if you're only accepting upon yourself to do something logically, so then the pros and cons may shift against what you said you would do. And then you start thinking, you know what? It doesn't pay to do it. However, once you made an oath, there is no making a calculation of the pros and cons because it makes no difference. You made an oath. You must do what you swore you would do. So that's the point of an oath. Knowing that he was going to have to stand up to Pharaoh, Jacob empowers him to be able to connect with this on a transnatural level, translogical, transrational level, and that he won't stop no matter what. And so it is. Now, he swears to him. That's stage one. Okay, everyone goes back to normal life, and now Jacob is really feeling that his time is coming. And they notify Joseph that your father is very sick. And our sages tell us that it was one of Joseph's sons who would consistently be by his grandfather and taking care of him, and he came to notify Joseph. Now, Joseph comes with his two sons to see his father. And Jacob tells him, behold, I'm sorry, they tell Jacob, behold, Joseph is coming. Jacob forces himself you know, to pick up strength, to sit up on the bed, to give honor to his son, even though Jacob's the father, but nevertheless, being the God bestowed Joseph with monarchy, and monarchy is a gift from God. It's not a human concept. It's a divine concept. Hence, amongst humans, monarchy on its own would never make sense. It's just because our sages tell us there's monarchy in heaven, so there's a reflection of monarchy on earth. So therefore, Jacob sits up to give honor to Joseph. Now he tells Joseph something very interesting. He says that when after you were born, God gave me a blessing telling me that I will yet be fruitful and I will have nations, plural. So he said the fruitful was Benjamin. I had another son after you. But who are the nations? Hence, I know I'm supposed to have two more that belong to me. And I never had those two children. So therefore, I am gifting you that your two children will become my two children. Now, what does that mean? What that means primarily is that Jacob has 12. The Jewish people are made up of the 12 tribes. Now, there's two ways of counting the 12 tribes. There's counting the 12 sons of Jacob. However, in certain instances, we cannot count the sons of Jacob. For example, the land of Israel has to be conquered and divided into 12 portions, one for each tribe. However, the tribe of Levi, which was chosen to work in the house of God, God clearly says in the Torah, they shall not receive a portion in the land of Israel, for I am that portion, their portion. 
Hence, we only have 11 tribes. So what do we do? Jacob tells Joseph, in these instances, since Levi is removed, you will be removed and your two sons will become the two missing tribes. So they will make up the 12 tribes in any situation where Levi cannot be part of the 12 tribes. Another such situation is the way the Jews traveled and camped in the desert. So there were three circles. The inner circle was the holy temple. The middle circle was the tribe of Levi. And the outer circle was, four, was three tribes on each of the four sides, which made up 12 tribes. Now again, if Levi is the middle circle, how do you have 12 tribes? And the answer is that when you look at a Jews traveled and when the Jews camp, you won't see the tribe of Joseph. Instead, you will see the tribe of Mephraim and Menashe, which are his two children. Now, I want to share with you what that means also. What that means also is, in the laws of the firstborn, there are two categories of a firstborn. There is what we call the firstborn, and there is what we call the opening of the uterus. For example, the law that every firstborn has to have a pidyon haben, has to be redeemed from the tribe of Levi, the Kohen. That is not the firstborn, that is the opening of the uterus. And this will make a difference in two ways. Number one, if there is a stillborn or a miscarriage after a certain level of pregnancy, then the next son will not have a pigeon aben because even though he's the firstborn, he's not the opening of the womb. One difference. Another difference is that if you look at the firstborn, it depends on the father. If you look at the opening of the uterus, it depends on the mother. Hence, Jacob had one firstborn, which was Ruve, but he had two, even though he had four, but we talk about the two main wives, Leah and Rachel, Rachel and Leah, he had two opening of the uteruses. Hence, Reuven was the opening of the uterus of Leah, but Joseph was the opening of the uterus of, of Rachel. Now, something unique is going to happen here. In the laws of inheritance, when a firstborn receives a double portion, that goes not by the opening of the uterus, but by the firstborn of the father. Nevertheless, Jacob tells Joseph, I'm going to give you a double portion. And hence, even though he wasn't the firstborn, he was only the opening of the uterus slash parentheses, opening a firstborn of Rachel, not of Jacob. Nevertheless, Jacob gifts him with a double portion. Jacob also gives Joseph a portion, an extra portion in the land. That means even though the land was divided only by the times of Joshua and Moses dictates the three channels through which Joshua will know which portion and what size belongs to each tribe. Nevertheless, Jacob says, I am going to pull a piece of land out of that system and give it to you. 
And he says, the reason I have a right to give it to you is because that piece of land, I went to war to conquer. And that whole story that happened when after Shimon and Levi killed out the entire city of Shechem because they, with the prince, raped their sister. So every they went to war and Jacob had to fight and conquer. Hence, Jacob says, I conquered and therefore I'm giving it to you. Interesting just to know that the verse clearly tells us that the fight was done on spiritual levels. Becharbi ubekashti, Rashi says, was meant it means through prayer. Now, he says, that land I will give to you. And by the way, Joseph is buried in Shechem. Now, I want to just share with you that by Jacob giving that to Joseph, Joseph gets, oh, excuse me, I'm so sorry. Joseph gets closure because where was Joseph sold into slavery and sent out of Israel from? Shechem. Hence, where is he being brought back to and buried in? Shechem. What's being given to him? Shechem. Okay. Now, before his father passes away, he wants his father to go ahead and bless his children. And Jacob, and Jacob tells him that I did not even dream that I would get to see you. And God has blessed me that not only do I get to see you, I get to see you and your offspring. Bring them to me and I will bless them. And now the verse tells us that Jacob's eyes were dim from old age. And Joseph brings them to his father. He brings them in between his two knees so that they can be close enough that Jacob can hug and kiss each one of them. And then Joseph backs them up to line them up in a way where Jacob will be able to put his hands on both their heads and give the blessing. And of course, he lines them up in the appropriate chronological order in which Menashe, the older one, will be next to the right hand of Jacob. Ephraim, the younger one, will be next to the left hand of Jacob. And that would be the appropriate way to have the blessings. However, Jacob wisely, and I say wisely because that's the word he uses here. He didn't just do it by mistake. He did it intentionally. He crisscrossed his hands and put his right hand on the younger brother and put his left hand on the older brother and he blesses them. And Joseph panics. Now, I want to stop here for a moment and let's just look at the practicality of what's happening here. Joseph went through a most difficult life, both in the house of his father and later being sold by his brothers simply because his father openly showed favoritism to him, letting it be known that Joseph is different than the rest. He's above the rest. So you can imagine Joseph's knee-jerk reaction when he sees deja vu. His father is doing it again. He's making a, a statement about Ephraim. Hence, not only does he tell his father, 
he literally wants to lift the hands of his father and correct them. And he says, no, father, I lined them up in a way for the older one to be next to your right hand. And Jacob tells Joseph, I know my son, I know the older one will also be great. However, the younger one will be greater than the older one. And he did not let his son switch his hands back to the right hand on the older one. Now, let's talk about this. Wouldn't Jacob have realized that this is not okay? Wouldn't Jacob realize I've caused so much pain to my son Joseph by doing this? Why do it again? So I want to share with you that the reason is that Jacob is the embodiment of truth. Abraham is the embodiment of love. Isaac is the embodiment of awe. Abraham, kindness. Isaac, justice. However, Jacob, the verse says, Titin emet liyakov. Emet, truth. Jacob is truth. Hence, truth needs to make sure that everyone will be empowered for what they need in their destiny. And niceties isn't a reason to not make sure that truth carries true, through. And he actually, he's referring to two specific cases. Ephraim, from him came the offspring Joshua. Joshua, the student of Moses, the successor of Moses, the conqueror of Israel, the, the land of Israel, and the teacher of Torah to his generation. However, Menashe also has an offspring much later in history through which God does a miracle, Gidon. Now, I want to share with you an interesting lesson. And I know, I know to us Americans, where we never want to point out differences, we think that democracy is, you know, like, like the song, uh, Imagine, if all those people, you know, we don't want differences because how can you have democracy and equality if we're going to acknowledge differences? And that's not the way of truth. The way of truth is to be able to see equality within differences because God has a huge machine and everyone plays their part and every part is important. However, we're not comfortable with it, which is why I don't want to skip over this. And I want to talk about this a little bit. I want to share, number one, let's get into a, a eternal message of what it means that Jacob says, Ephraim, you are the greater continuity of Joseph. And by the way, so too it happens when we learn about the Haftorah of last week, when we talk about bringing together in the prophecy of Ezekiel, the branch of Joseph and the branch of, of, uh, of uh, Yehuda, it clearly says there the branch of Ephraim from Joseph. So Ephraim is the greater continuity of Joseph. 
So I want to just give you, give you, share with you, it's not my own thoughts, share with you a very interesting insight to why we say that Ephraim is the true continuity of Joseph. And to understand that, we need to go back to the verses in which Joseph has the children and names the children and gives the reason for the naming. When it comes to Menashe, it says, Kinishani. When it comes to Ephraim, he says, Kihifrani. Now, loosely speaking, Nishani, but what the, what the meaning here is, Nishani means I survived my sufferings. Hifrani means that I was fruitful, I grew, and success in my suffering, in this land of suffering. Hence, we now understand that Jacob is telling Joseph, survival is never the goal. The goal is to grow. Just to survive our sufferings, just to survive our experiences, would mean that our experiences were for naught. Why did you have to put me through this? Just that I should survive, don't put me through it, and I'll survive. So we must say that all suffering is not for the sake of survival, but for the sake of unfathomed and, and, and quantum leap of prosperity. Hence, the true continuity of Joseph is Ephraim. However, needless to say, there would be no Ephraim if we didn't first have a Menashe. You know, you can't have an Ephraim without a Menashe because that's what they call in the medical field, the operation was a success, but the patient died. So you have to have Menashe. And then we need to know that it's not enough. We need to get to Ephraim. Now, I want to share with you something else. Homogenization in Judaism is not a good thing. And we're going to see that Jacob doesn't just give a homogenous blessing, if that's the right way I'm saying it, to his sons, but rather he talks to each and every one of his sons separately and giving them each a specific, unique blessing. Today, you know, I send out my memes on the Torah portion, it's on Instagram, and I wrote in one of them today that if there is one blessing for everyone, then except for one, all blessings are unfitting. And therefore, it's important to realize that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were the head. They were the covering. They were the encompassing. However, the 12 tribes are no more in this generalism of an encompassing Jewish Judaism. Rather, they're each very specific, individual expressions of Judaism. And there are no two of them that are alike. I don't know if you're aware of this. I'll just share with you now that later in Exodus, when we learn of the splitting of the sea of the red of the of the Sea of Reeds, you should know that Universal Studios did not get it right. It is not one break. It is actually 13 breaks because of the 12 tribes as 
I just explained them to you. And then there's the tribe of Levi. Why didn't God just make one opening? Because the path to Mount Sinai is individual. Every tribe represents their own unique way of service. And hence, every one of them has to have their own blessings. On top of that, yes, in Jewish law, when it comes to monarchy, when it comes to a rabbinical um, uh, position, the firstborn is the first one that we look on to take the place of the father, to be the successor, if he is the most suitable. For example, as you all know, King Solomon was not the firstborn of King David. And so to we find in, in rabbinical dynasties, it's not always the first son. For example, the fourth Lubavitcher Rebbe is the seventh and youngest son of the third Lubavitcher Rebbe. It's not always the firstborn. Why God does it this way, you'd have to ask him. But one does not assume that the oldest is the most befitting and the rest is, you know, lesser than. Hence, it's very possible again and again. Jacob was the younger twin. Joseph was the younger brother. Ephraim was the younger brother. And it keeps on going like that. So, and you know, King David was the youngest of the seven. So one should not think that it has to be that God works in chronological order and gives the best to the first. As a middle child, I'm going to wave my flag here and tell you that there's actually a teaching on why Abraham's first child was Ishmael and his second child only was Isaac. And there's a mystical teaching because the peel comes before the fruit. But the fruit is what's important. So that's just me waving my little middle, middle child syndrome here, letting you know that us middle ones are the, uh, you know, the second one, the fruit. But anyway, moving right along here. So after that, Jacob tells his children, his sons, gather together and I will tell you what will happen to you at the end of days. Gather together and listen, sons of Jacob, listens to Israel, your father. So he clearly says what he's about to do, and then he never does it. He goes ahead and changes topic and starts giving blessings. Now, I already gave you the preview to this part of the Torah portion to tell you that Jacob wanted to reveal to them when Mashiach is going to come, and Hashem said, don't. And Hashem said, don't, by just lifting away that spiritual that spiritual level from him, and he realized God is telling him, don't do it. Simply speaking, our sages say, the reason why God told him not to do this is because this is somewhere about the year 2400, and as we know, Mashiach is coming in the year 5781, may it be so, so there's going to be such a long time, why would you tell them that's going to be so long? You know, it's kind of like when you drive to New York, if you do that with your kids, and, you know, when you get ready to uh, Palm Beach, they're ready, are we there yet? You don't answer them. 
you just start giving them their Game Boys and books and start playing toy games, just get their mind off it. But then when they already forget to even ask you about it, and now you're on the New Jersey Turnpike and you want to start getting them excited, you start telling them, guys, do you know how far we are from New York? You bring up the situation. So too, you'll find in the history that it is very recent that there is a total renaissance in the consciousness and the yearning and the talking and the singing of Mashiach coming because we're on the turnpike getting into New York. And therefore, he doesn't, he doesn't say. Now, the Rebbe gives an unbelievable deeper insight to what's going on here. And by the way, I want to share with you that there's two traditions to our major declaration of faith, Shema Yisrael, Hero Israel, God is our God, God is one. If you look into that portion in Deuteronomy, which is the ultimate declaration of Jewish faith, you will see that we say the verse, Hero Israel, God is our God, God is one. The next verse is, and you shall love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. However, when you and I say the Shema, we insert between verse 1 and 2, we insert a verse called, Baruch Shem Kevod Malchuto Lolam Ba'ed, blessed be the name, your sovereignty, forever and ever. Where did that verse come from? So there's two traditions. The more famous tradition that everyone knows is that when Moses went up to the mountain and there and he and to get he to went up to heaven to receive the Torah, he heard the angel singing praise and he heard them saying that verse. And he says, you know, I'm going to bring that back to my people, which is the reason why, according to tradition, we say that verse quietly because it doesn't really belong to humans. It's an angelic prayer. And that will also explain for all of us why the only day of the year that we say that verse loud is on Yom Kippur when we are like angels. What does that mean we're like angels? It means that we're not engaging in our human side. There's no eating. There's no procreation. So we're more the angelic spiritual side. Hence, we say the verse out loud. That's one tradition. Another tradition says that it comes from right here, right here. Why? Because when Jacob wants to reveal to his sons when Mashiach is going to come and he sees that God lifts, lifts that Holy Spirit from him, he asked his sons, are you, are you engaging in idol worship? Why wouldn't you be deserving to receive this just like I was deserving to receive this knowledge? So he right away thought it's because of that, you know, maybe little by little on the, you know, when he's not looking, they're engaging in, in foreign behaviors. They answer to him, Shema Yisrael, hear Israel. Remember, Israel is Jacob's nickname. Hear Israel. Hashem Elokeinu, God, your God, Elokeinu is our God. And it's not just that we also have him as a God, but Hashem Echad, we only have one God. So there's a teaching that that's really where this verse, Hero Israel, God is our God, God is one, really starts from. Jacob, in hearing this, he responds with, Baruch Shem Kavod Machutolalamvad, he thanks God and blesses God that his children are faithful to God. 
Now, the question here is, what is going on? The Rebbe wants to say, okay, if Jacob wanted to do it, so it was the right thing to do. Yet God is stopping him to do it. Even more than that, the Rebbe says, if Jacob wanted it to be done, it's what had to be done. And even though God stopped him, he found a way to do it anyway. How does that work? How it works is that Jacob lives in the land, in the, in the realm, as I told you previously concerning Jacob and Joseph, Jacob lives in the world of divinity. And what that means in the world of divinity is that he doesn't see physicality. He sees nothing more than manifestations of his divinity. In other words, when he sees an ox, a physical ox, remember, he was a shepherd. When he saw the ox, his eyes didn't see the ox. His eyes saw what Ezekiel saw in his vision, that under the throne was the face of an ox. He saw its spiritual dimension. To him, the physical world was not at all anything to be reckoned with other than it is the physical realm to his spirituality. Hence to him, this concept of Mashiach was a tangible reality with which he lived, where everything is divinity. God is everything and everything is God. And that's what he wanted to give his sons. However, God pulls it back from him and says, no, 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 no. You I allow to live in the spiritual realm so that you can empower your children. But I need your children not to see the ox in the vision of Ezekiel. I need them to see an ox, an ox that really you can make a living from, you can plow your fields from, and you can make money from. I need them to see the physicality of the physicality. And for them to be able to live in the physical world, not in the spiritual paradigm of the physical world, but in the physical paradigm of the physical world, in which if you don't earn money, you don't have not a physical life and not a spiritual life. You're homeless, you can't study Torah, you can't do mitzvot, you can't do anything without money. Hence, you have to realize that the physical or the physicality is a reality. And there I want them to be good Jewish boys. Hence, don't give them what you have. Now, Jacob finds a way to anyway be able to give them at least this overhead, abstract connection to the spirituality so that they should survive the coarse opaqueness of the physicality. Again, without our forefathers, we don't stand a chance of survival. You know, today we each wear an oxygen tank when we go deep sea diving. In the olden days, they used to have on a boat a huge motor uh, and with oxygen and there would be hoses and you would go down. And if you lost connection to the boat, you were dead. That's the way it works spiritually. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are on the boat feeding oxygen to their offspring, you and I, who are deep sea diving, looking to find the pearls that lay in the physical world, the gems, the spiritual diamonds that we can only acquire through physical engagement. Hence, 
they, the story works well from all sides. Jacob wants to give it to them full blown. God says, no, that will interfere with the plan. But Jacob realizes that he has to at least give them this overall abstract, at least connection with the spirituality of God is everything and everything is God. If not, they will be swallowed up by physicality. So he gives it to them in blessings. The Rebbe asks one more question. The Rebbe asks that obviously Jacob was affected. The spirituality lifted from him, right? It, it, he became closed, like we said in the opening of the portion. Why? So the Rebbe explains very simple. This is the self-sacrifice of a true teacher. A teacher in his realm lives in the full-blown beauty of his spirituality or her spirituality. However, when you want to connect with the student, you have to connect with the student's paradigm. And the student's paradigm is an opaqueness compared to the teacher. And if the teacher is going to say, forget the student, I'm going to just give it all full blown. And if they get it, they get it. They don't get it. They don't get it. That's not going to work. Hence, Jacob had to connect with his sons in a level that he is affected by the opaqueness of their environment in order that he should be able to at least pump them the oxygen they should need in order to survive their opaque environment. And then we go to the blessings. Ruvain, his father starts giving him Musr. He's giving him a rebuke. Why did you do what you did after Rachel died? And I put my bed in the tent of Billah, which was the, the, um, the maid of, of Rachel, which would bring up Rachel's kids. Who are you to take my bed out and say, no, it should be in my mother's tent of Leah? And then Shimon and Levi, he gives over the head saying, you guys, why is your reaction always violent? And he, you, you're the ones that wiped out the entire, the entire Shem. Now, I want to share with you very interesting insights. If you look at the verse, it says, and you wanted to uproot the ox. If you look in the blessings, Joseph is compared to an ox. Look at what Moses blesses the tribe of Joseph. It's compared to an ox. And now I want to share with you, there is great discussion amongst the sages if Jacob ever found out what they did to Joseph. In other words, Joseph wouldn't say because it was gossip. The brothers wouldn't say it about themselves. So did Jacob ever know how Joseph really got to Egypt, and most opinions say no. He just knew that he's there and that he was brought there. But here, our sages say that there was a spark of prophecy because who was the ones that originally said, let's kill him? First they said, let's kill him. Reuben says, don't kill him, just throw him in the ditch. Judas says, don't leave him in the ditch, let's sell him. Why do we have to have him die? So who were the ones that originally said, let's kill him? Here we know it was Shimon and Levi and Joseph and Jacob has a spark of prophecy and tells them, and you were the ones that wanted to uproot the ox, meaning Joseph. Judah starts backing off and saying, whoa, 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 God, uh, you know, that is, is, is dishing out here rebuke. And I know that I slipped uh, unintentionally, but nevertheless, I slipped and had 
uh, a physical relationship and children from my uh, twins, from my daughter-in-law. And he says, oh my God, I'm going to get it over my head now. And he starts backing up. And Jacob tells Joseph, no, 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 you're different. Come, come here. Now our sages want to know, and why is Judah different? And they explain very simple. Do you remember the story that we learned when his daughter-in-law Tamar was pregnant and he says she had an affair, obviously. She needs to be killed, burnt by the stake. She does not say, no, 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 it was you. She takes the cloak, the staff, and the ring and says, please look at these and recognize that it's from this man that I am with child, with children. And Judah rose up and said, she is right, it was me. And it's all my fault because I intended for her to be stuck as a, as a, as a widow locked into not being able to marry anyone because my first two sons died and I didn't want my third son to die. So hence, she is right. So therefore, Jacob says, Yehuda, you lived up to it. You didn't just hide. You stood up and said, she's right, I'm wrong. And then you went on to continuously make amends. You are not going to rebuke for your past. And therefore, he starts blessing him. And here begins the blessings. Each one is compared to a different animal. Rashi takes the time to go through the history of each tribe, pinpointing what Jacob is alluding to with each one of these blessings. And then after he finishes blessings, he goes ahead and he says something very interesting. Our sages say you will not find anywhere in these verses the words, and Jacob died. Rather, it says, and Jacob ceased to give direct his children and he gathered in his feet into the bed and then it says he was gathered to the nations it doesn't say the word vayomos it says the word vayigva but it doesn't say the word vayomos and our sages say why because Jacob never died and the Talmud says what, what are you talking about how can you say Jacob never died he was embalmed embalmed meant that they drained the blood out of him they took the organs out of him what do you mean he didn't die did they not bury him? Did they not mourn him? Did they not cry over him? So the answer, the Talmud answers, Because he, his offspring is alive, so too is he alive. Okay, thank you. So then my grandfather didn't die either. He has his sons and each one of the, his children, sons and daughters, and each one of them has their children, each one of them has their children. So no one dies, I mean, so he says, no, the Rebbe of blessed memory explains what does it mean. What it means is that now that we know that Jacob's entire life was directed towards Joseph bringing his spirituality into the physical domain. Hence, it's not that his children are alive, but rather when you look at me and you, you see the life that Jacob lived what we eat and what we don't eat, what we do and what we don't do, how we bring up our children and how we don't bring up our children. This is Jacob teaching our children through us. 
This is the continuity of Jacob. And then it tells us that he embalmed, he embalmed, oh wow, it's so late. Oh my God. Okay, so uh, just to wrap it up. So um, Joseph embalms uh, Jacob, and the big question is, according to Jewish law, you're not allowed to embalm because you're not allowed to do anything to the body other than leave it in its entirety, prepare it by cleansing it and putting it in the water, ritual waters, and then putting it in the ground. So why would J Joseph do that? The Rebbe explains very simple why. Because what happened was that, that <clears throat> the people in Egypt considered allowing a body to decompose as the ultimate disgrace and disrespect. Hence, if J. Joseph wouldn't have embalmed Jacob, the people would have said, what a disrespectful people they are. I want to have nothing what to do with them and their religion. Therefore, in order not to make a disgrace to the name of God, therefore, the exact opposite happens. He goes ahead and he embalms. He embalms his father. And then they go ahead and they bring their father up to, up to Israel. And actually, there was a problem because Pharaoh didn't want to let and Jacob, Joseph said, I swore to him. So he says, I know your vow. He says, one second, I made to you a vow too. So if you believe in annulling the vows, I will know my vow to you too. And Pharaoh says, okay, I get it. Don't annul no vows. Go do what you, what you swore you're going to do. And he stood up to Pharaoh. And that wasn't the easy thing. That could have costed him his life. And then he goes ahead and he brings his father to Israel. And he's buried in Hebron. And there's a story there, but we're really running into overtime. So I'll just share with you that after what the Torah says exactly, uh, uh, what the Torah says, not just what our sages explain. And that is that when after they came back, all of a sudden Joseph stopped inviting his brothers to the meal. In other words, he said, as long as father was here, it's father's table. Now that father passed away, you must become the father of your children. And therefore, he tells each and every one of them, you go, you go be the grand. You know, there's a song, um, if you ever want to look it up, who will be the Zadie of my children? Who will be the grandfather of my kids who will show them what, what, what the old-fashioned, you know, Jew is supposed to look like? And therefore, he tells, go, go to your family. But of course, because they're still living in a paradigm of guilt, so they're still thinking in a paradigm of retribution, so they're still thinking, uh-oh, Daddy passed away, guess who's going to get even with us now? And therefore, they come up with this scheme that they lied to Joseph. They tell Joseph that father told us that we should tell you that he's asking you after he dies not to take revenge. And Joseph starts crying. How could you even think I would do that? They started crying. And he said, dad, dad never told you this because dad knows me, knows I would never take revenge. And therefore, um, he says, you have nothing what to worry about. And then the Torah portion finished. That Jacob, uh, that Joseph passes away, and Joseph tells them, "Make sure to bring my bones as well to Israel when the time comes that God's going to take you out of Egypt." He knew that they wouldn't be able to do it now, and so we know the story that ultimately it is Moses that goes ahead and finds the coffin of Joseph, and he's the one that personally brings it all the way to the border of Israel. And then, of course, as you know, Moses doesn't enter Israel, so then. The, the Jewish people carry it in. Okay, um, it's really late. I'm really sorry I wasn't paying attention. I was just getting caught up with all the teachings on this Torah portion. There's a wealth of it. A wealth of it. So instead, I want to just share with you um, just briefly an insight. Isn't it interesting 
that the closing of a chapter, the closing of Genesis, the closing of an era, is the Torah portion that's called Vayechi, and he lived. I mean, imagine the last chapter of a book ending the story with all the main characters, all the main protagonists are, you know, they pass away, not, not terribly, of old age, of beautiful and everything, and the last chapter is called, and he lived. He didn't live. Hence, we know from here, and again, I'm going to be very short because it's so late. Hence, we know from here that Genesis, its entire existence is to bring the, and he lived into the next four books, into the prophets, into the scriptures, into your story, and into my story. People, thank you very much.